0: The Daily 202's Big Idea is supported by Battelle. For 90 years, the employees of Battelle have solved the world's most challenging problems, finding solutions and really big ideas. At Battelle, it can be done. Learn more at battelle.org slash 90. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, August 19th. In today's news, The Islamic State claims responsibility for a suicide attack that killed 63 during a wedding in Afghanistan. Some of America's most prominent CEOs say they'll abandon shareholder primacy theory. And Joe Kennedy III may primary a Democratic senator. But first, the big idea. It took a shooter all of 32 seconds to spray 41 rounds outside a popular bar in Dayton, Ohio this month, an attack that killed nine people and injured 27. A lightning-fast response from nearby officers prevented a far higher toll. When police shot him dead, the killer still had dozens of bullets to go in his double-drum 100-round magazine. The use of such high-capacity magazines was banned in Ohio until 2015, when a little-noticed change in state law legalized the devices. It's part of an overall rollback in gun control measures that has been mirrored in states nationwide. With the pace of mass shootings accelerating and their tolls dramatically increasing, criminologists and reform advocates are more intently focused on limiting access to such accessories as one of the most potent ways to curb this epidemic. Restrictions on the capacity of bullet magazines won't stop mass shootings, but they could make the attacks less deadly giving potential targets precious seconds to escape or to fight back while the shooter reloads. David Chipman, who served 25 years as a special agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, told my colleague Griffwit that the high-capacity magazine is what takes these mass shootings to a whole other level of carnage. The odds that Congress or state legislatures will act anytime soon still appear relatively remote. Powerful gun rights lobbying groups, including the National Rifle Association, vigorously oppose high-capacity magazine bans or limits, arguing that criminals will find a way to obtain the devices regardless of the law, just as they do with assault weapons. Still, a growing body of evidence suggests that past federal and current state-level restrictions on magazine capacity have been effective, and with high-capacity magazines becoming a staple of mass shootings, experts unfortunately have an ever-longer litany of case studies to bolster their argument. Magazines like the one used in Dayton have little utility in hunting, law enforcement, or self-defense, but high-capacity devices, which are readily available on the internet and in stores, have been used in more than half of all mass shootings in recent years, including the especially deadly attacks in Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs, Texas, and Parkland, Florida. Taken together, those three attacks, from October 2017 to February 2018, claimed 101 lives and injured 459 people. A high capacity magazine was also used in the 2011 Tucson shooting of then Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. She leads a gun control group now that Chipman, the former ATF agent, works for. Magazines like the one used in Dayton have little utility in hunting, law enforcement, or self defense, but high capacity devices, which are readily available online and in stores, have been used in more than half of all mass shootings in recent years, including the especially deadly attacks in Las Vegas. Sutherland Springs, Texas, and Parkland, Florida. Taken together, those three attacks from October 2017 to February 2018 claimed 101 lives and injured 459 people. Magazines with a capacity of more than 10 bullets were prohibited from 1994 to 2004 under federal law, the same law that included a prohibition on assault weapons. But since that law lapsed, research shows gun crimes involving high-capacity semi-automatic weapons have increased markedly. Cecil Thomas, a 27-year veteran of the Cincinnati Police Department, said he had to worry as an officer that, with a 15-round clip and one in the chamber of his pistol, criminals would outgun him. He said his little 9mm would be useless against an AR-15. Now, he's a Democrat in the Ohio State Senate, and he's trying to do something about it. The Dayton rampage has only deepened Thomas's conviction that the laws need to be toughened, He hopes Republicans will be amenable to a change that wouldn't infringe on the legality of the guns themselves. Thomas says you have a constitutional right to bear arms, but as he put it, not the right to bear all the ammunition in the world. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one. At least 63 people were killed when a suicide bomber linked to the Islamic State blew himself up in a crowded wedding hall in the Afghan capital of Kabul late Saturday night, one of the most devastating attacks on civilians in years. The local affiliate of the Islamic State claimed responsibility in a statement posted online. City hospitals were overwhelmed. Relatives waited hours outside for news about their loved ones, and often the news was bad. The unprecedented targeting of a wedding party attended by women and children struck at the heart of Kabul's lively, family-oriented social scene. A spokesman for the Taliban insurgents denied any connection to the bombing in a tweet. He said the group condemns it in the strongest terms. The Taliban is in peace negotiations with U.S. officials, who have said they expect to reach a deal soon that would lead to most U.S. troops leaving the country. The Taliban, an Afghan militia with extremist Sunni beliefs, often attacks military and governmental targets. The Islamic State, an international Sunni terrorist group as well, is notorious for savage attacks on civilians and views Shiites as apostates. Its local affiliate has claimed numerous attacks in Kabul, many of them in the city's Shiite-dominated districts. Number two. A group representing the nation's most powerful CEOs announced this morning that maximizing shareholder profits should no longer be the primary goal of corporations. The new statement released by the Business Roundtable Suggests balancing the needs of a company's various constituencies, including customers and workers. It comes at a time of widening income inequality, rising expectations from the public for corporate behavior, and proposals from Democratic lawmakers that aim to revamp or even restructure American capitalism. The organization is chaired by JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Diamond, and he orchestrated this statement. The concept that a corporation's sole duty is to maximize shareholder value grew to prominence in the mid-1980s. It's since become a widely accepted governance norm. But it has led to a fixation on short-term quarterly results and helped balloon the size of CEO pay packages fueled by outsized stock awards. This new statement comes as the gap between the compensation growth of CEOs and -and rank-and-file workers has grown at staggering rates. Notably, a handful of big companies refused to sign on to the statement. Among the holdouts... Alcoa, GE, Kaiser Permanente, and State Farm. What matters now, though, is how much the companies that did sign actually changed their practices in light of their new commitment. Number three, Congressman Joe Kennedy III, the Democrat from Massachusetts who delivered the State of the Union response last year, is very seriously considering a primary challenge next year against Senator Ed Markey. The clash would be epic and generational. Bobby Kennedy's grandson is 38. The incumbent is 73. Freshman Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, a member of the squad, showed last year in the Bay State that even popular incumbents can be felled as she slayed Congressman Michael Capuano in a primary. He was popular, but she was the insurgent. On Saturday, a spokeswoman for Kennedy put out a statement saying that, quote, right now, the congressman is seeking re-election. Right now are the operative words there. Marky said he won't be chased into retirement. He bragged yesterday at a protest for gun control in Boston that he has $4 million cash in his campaign account. The New York Times reports that Kennedy paid for an internal poll last month to test how he'd fare against Markey, who's kept a low profile and isn't well known even in the state. Kennedy has also been calling top Democrats in D.C. and in Boston to say that he's serious about this. Even Markey's strategists acknowledge that Kennedy would likely start the race with a lead in the polls. And there's a new draft Kennedy group called Jump in Joe with a website and Facebook page. Some speculate that it's linked to Kennedy loyalists. Elizabeth Warren, the state's senior senator, had endorsed Markey about six months ago. She recorded a commercial for him that's been in the can. Campaigning this weekend in South Carolina, she did not recant her endorsement, but also offered effusive praise for Kennedy. J.K. III, Joseph Kennedy III, as everyone in politics calls him, J.K. III, went to Stanford for undergrad and then Harvard Law School. That's where he met Warren, who became a mentor. He also met his wife, Lauren, there. Politico reports this morning that potential Democratic candidates in Kennedy's 4th congressional district are making calls behind the scenes in the expectation that he will vacate the seat to run for Senate. The young Kennedy has dreamed his whole life about serving in the Senate, where his great uncles, Jack and Teddy, and his grandpa, Bobby, served. Markey himself offers a sort of cautionary tale for Kennedy about the perils of waiting around for a Senate seat to open up. As an ambitious young congressman in 1984, Markey initially was running for the Senate seat that was left vacant by Paul Songus. He withdrew from that race, however, and then he ended up needing to wait nearly 30 years before it opened up again when John Kerry resigned to become Secretary of State. While Massachusetts' other Senate seat would open up if Warren wins the presidency next year, a special election to fill her seat would likely feature a crowded, open field of Democratic candidates. Though Kennedy would likely be a top tier candidate, other heavyweights would probably make a play as well. Beating the incumbent Markey might remarkably be easier than running for the open seat in 2021. And that's the Daily 202 for Monday, August 19th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.